Hey everybody, it's Nathan. Just a quick invitation. On December 6th, I'm doing a free online class. It's uh, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and I'm calling it the December 2017 LSAT Postmortem. We're going to talk briefly about what people have said about the test, stories from different test centers, whether or not you should cancel your score, and just a broad Q&A. Basically, uh, you ask and I'll answer um, you can register for that via my website. Just go to foxlsat.com and click on courses and you'll see your registration. Thanks. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. and with me is Nathan Fox in, I'm assuming, L.A. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm about to take a little break, though, and go to Tahoe for Thanksgiving. So I'm excited. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, uh, we're going to go to the beach and then come right back. So, Oh, excellent. Where are you going to the beach? Uh, I'm actually not sure. All I know is that it's four hours away. Oh, okay. Is it, you're going south, I assume. Yeah, we go south, point. and um, you know the beach uh, houses are cheaper at this time. So it's, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but some other family is coming up there, and I am just planning to show ride. up. Yep. It'll be fun. Cool. It's not going to be like really like swimming beach, is it? No, no, I mean, no. I think Not that, this time of year. I think they're just taking advantage of the beach house sort of thing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That'll be fun. Yeah. So we have a lot of cool stuff here on the show. Um, first of all, we got this donation of nine dollars and 99 cents and you have a hunch as to who this might be from well maybe but i don't want to say it on the show because i it's it's too too speculative but okay sure um we have an anonymous russian donor who my my hypothesis is that it's not russian at all okay Mm -hmm. and that it's a student of mine who just likes using one button instead of using more than one button to delineate numbers yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, nine ninety nine. We really appreciate yeah. that. A um, yeah. lot of uh, interesting news too. I mean, uh, we have this article in Vice uh, that I want to talk about, and you you sent it to me, and then some students in class mentioned at least uh, last night that they had read it. I think so. It seems to be getting around, and then you just added this article from Above the Law, right? Um, yeah, I just saw this on Twitter this morning. So the headline was ABA finally puts law school poster child for piss poor bar pass and employment rates on probation. And uh, I clicked on it and it was our favorite Ben Thomas Jefferson School of Law. No way. On, the uh, one that was being a- all open and honest. Well, I mean, they might have become open and honest because they know they're kind of up against it. Huh? Yeah. Right. So and and they might have like put that scholarship table on their website because they're like, hey, listen, you know, we have to start getting better candidates here. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I clicked through that article and it does have some pretty damning uh, stuff in there. You know, I mean, they've been admitting a lot of people with like one forties LSAT scores. Yeah. And um, it's just I hate to break it to you, but when when you go to law school with a an LSAT score in the one forties, your your bar passage chances and your employment chances are not good. Nope. So, and I mean, I would really, I kind of say the same for people with the one fifty. Anything in the one fifties makes me feel queasy too. 
What uh, what was their bar passage rate? Do we know? Oh, I don't know. We can actually look at this article if you like. Yeah, I'm just curious what uh, pushed them over the edge. Okay, oh, I see right here. It says, last summer, only 31% of Thomas Jefferson graduates who took the California bar exam for the first time were able to pass, down 16% from July of 2015. Yeah. Um, I know we say this all the time, but I just want to make sure, I want to make clear that I do not think that this has anything to do with the education that you get at Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson is a fine institution. <laughs> well, I don't, I'm not saying that either, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, but I just don't think that it, it's because of their poor admission standards. It's not because of their, their, that they're not a good a school. I mean, I, I, I'm sure all these people are like, probably Thomas Jefferson's doing more to try to get people to pass the bar than other schools. They should. Yeah. And then I'm sure these students are also like taking Barbary and Kaplan and all of the like bar prep classes. Yeah. But it's just that they're not, they're like not, um, I don't want to say the wrong word here, but they're, they're, they are, um, <laughs> they're not like talented enough to pass the bar. The bar exam is very difficult. And if you can't conquer the LSAT, you can't conquer the bar exam. So that's why it's, it's because they admit people with very low LSAT scores. And so then of course they have a brutally low bar passage rate. Yeah. It's, you're not going to see people who (laughs) do really poorly on the LSAT and do really well in the bar. Right. So my hypothesis though is Again, you know, if you go to Thomas Jefferson, like if you get a 160 and you decide to take a full ride to Thomas Jefferson, you have far better than a 30% chance of passing the bar. Yeah. I mean, the people who are failing are the people who are there with a 142 and a 146 and a 148. Mm-hmm. If you're there with your 160, you're you're going to you're you're going to be I would give you better than 50% chance of passing the bar. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh I want to keep going here because it goes on and says that um, this 31% was second only to uh, Whittier. Is that how you say that? Yeah, Whittier. Mm -hmm. Whittier, which uh, recently announced its closure. Yeah, rest in peace. (laughs) In part to its low bar passage rate. So this is really the bottom of the barrel. Um, Most schools that I look at, when I look at their 509 reports, they seem to have bar passage rates between like 65 and 70% or something. That seems to be the numbers I've had, I have in my head. Obviously there are schools that are below that and above that. Yeah. California schools are going to be lower than that, but yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's just something to think about. I mean, this is half of that. And so when you're going out and you're looking at 509 reports, which everyone should be doing now, um, you can get a sense of the caliber of that school. Uh, of that class, right? And what's what's going on there? So yeah, the caliber of the class, not the caliber of the education that you get at that school. Yeah, um, I, I think those two things are like entirely different. But uh, yeah, so hey, um, they're giving you a lot of scholarship money at Thomas Jefferson, but they also might not exist anymore <laughs> after a while. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, they'll get through this uh, probation and. Uh, clean up their act a little bit. I mean, what they really need to do to clean up their act is just stop admitting people who 
can't cut it. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So this next article, which you uh, emailed to me, is on Vice, and it's entitled, I took the LSAT with zero preparation. Um, I thought this article was interesting for two reasons, or worth discussing for two reasons. One, because this person ironically did pretty well for not doing any preparation, yet walked away from this experience concluding that they were (laughs) not a prodigy. Um, And then two, so totally wrong, totally wrong conclusion there in my mind. And two, the comments by uh, the president of LSAC seemed a little misleading. And I thought that we could clarify some of the stuff. Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, did you have anything else that you thought was interesting about this article? Well, I mean, everything that you bolded, I thought we definitely need to talk about, including that 158. I thought that was really funny. Yeah, because because the the tone of the article is like, I took the LSAT with zero preparation. Maybe people don't need to prep. And this person got a one fifty eight. Yeah, and they're like, so see, everything's cool. Why do we need to prep for the LSAT? And yeah, my immediate response to that would be like, well, because you could have probably got like a one sixty eight if you would have prepped, well, and a one sixty eight is like a vastly life changingly better score than a one fifty eight. Yeah. Well, so what are you trying to do? Are you trying to just get into a mediocre law school or are you trying to go to go somewhere great? Or are you trying to get a scholarship? What are you doing? Well, he was doing what I think uh, too many people do out there. And that is they just take the test and they say, well, if it goes well, and they take it officially too, right? If it goes well, then law is for me. If it doesn't go well, then law is not for me. And this guy took it. He got a 158 with no preparation. If anyone writes into the show and they say, my cold diagnostic was a 158, we say, that's freaking awesome. Way to go. You have huge potential in front of you. Um, you're doing better than the vast majority of people out there who are starting this whole process. And so yeah. we would think of them as a, <laughs> a law school prodigy, to use this guy's term. And yet... He got a 158 and says, uh, okay, while my 158 is respectable, it doesn't make me a prodigy. So it almost sounds like he's going to abandon the whole law school thing, yet he's precisely the kind of individual that should be prepping, nailing 170, and going to a great law school. Yeah, if you ended with a 158, I would be like, uh, okay... This might be an uphill battle for you. I'm not really so sure that you should go to law school. You're on the fence. You're like, yeah, like dicey. Yeah. But if you if you start with a 158, I'm like, oh, this is exactly the type of person that I should that I would like to work with and yeah, get you your 168 and you know, send you somewhere really great. Yeah. So very misleading article here uh, in that regard, but um, maybe this guy will hear about what we have to say and change his mind and get his um, act together and go take it again and crush it. But the second thing here is that he interviewed um, Kelly Testy, the president of LSAC, yep. and this is what she says. She says that LSAC actually worries test takers spend too much time preparing 
that's their concern. I think they should be concerned about the half of the individuals who go take the test and have no idea what they're doing on test day. She then it goes on and says, it suggests students familiarize it, referring to LSAC, suggests students familiarize themselves with the test and the rhyme of the questions, or the rhythm, rhythm, rhythm. sorry, the rhythm of the questions and maybe maybe take an online course. Okay, I don't know why because this. they're launching their own next year. <laughs> yes, it's like why did you why did you pick an online course versus a live class versus tutoring? Yeah, all right. Hmm. But anyways, um, she goes or I presumably this is her thought process. Scores don't usually improve much, so taking it multiple times isn't advised. That we've heard that before, and we've heard that from LSAC before because the data does show that, right? Like re- people who retake the test all go up on average, I think, uh, two points, which yeah. in my mind is still significant. That could Absolutely. be a di- big difference depending on, I mean, on, on, on any scale, uh, 150 to 152, 158 to 160, 164 to 166. Those are all very different scores. And so... Yeah, the scoring scale is super compressed. So if you move up two points, you're moving your, yourself past hundreds or or thousands of people. Yeah. So if you you know how what is not much? I mean, two points is is you should pat yourself on the back, and it it would be potentially worth retaking the test to get two more points. That could be tens of thousands of dollars of scholarship money. Yeah. the The bigger problem here, though, is that it's it's true that the average is two points, but how many people are going up? five points, six points, 10 points, because they get their act together, they take the test seriously, they prepare, and then they go back and take it again. That's a huge difference. So looking at the large group and therefore concluding that no individual should retake it is seriously misguided. But it's something that LSAC has been saying for a long time. She's not the first person to kind of hit at this idea that, hey, we've looked at the data and people usually go up only two points, therefore don't take it again. Just kind of take it and run with it. The data is also tainted by all the really bad prep out there. I mean, it's like, okay, so we got some people who are retaking it without doing anything. Mm -hmm. We have other people who are retaking it with like a Kaplan class in between. Yeah, yeah. And the, the Kaplan class can actually hurt you with their stupid strategies they're teaching you. Yeah. So, I mean, I, in fact, and that happens to high scorers all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I've, I can't tell you how many high, how it's like, well, my diagnostic was 162. Then I took a Kaplan class and then I got 159 on my actual. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> sounds about right. Yeah. So, okay. So, but I mean, then, you know, I can't blame LSAC for having this sort of poor view of LSAT prep. If it, I mean, if Kaplan and Princeton like still dominate the market, for some reason. Yeah. Then LSAC just might look at test prep generally and be like, eh, you guys don't really help people. Yeah. I think there's that. I also just, now that we're talking about it, I wonder if there's a little vested interest in trying to suggest that the scores don't change much simply because then it suggests that this, the test is more like reliable or something more valid. Like people can't game it kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, and that's what maybe she, when she's saying, we worry that people study too much. It's like, you know, oh, social justice. Like we, we want this to be an egalitarian kind of a thing where it doesn't it get, it's like, there's not an advantage for, for folks who can pay, can, who can take a prep class, which 
I'm sympathetic to that view. It's it's not realistic, but I'm totally sympathetic. I, I yeah. get it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> he continues. So what would happen if someone took it without studying at all, he asks. She says, quote, I find it's a it's good to at least have looked at the kinds of questions. Before she concluded, it's not absolutely necessary. You know, you might do great. You might have a mind that thinks really, really critically. <laughs> okay. I mean, by the strict definition of necessary. Yeah. She's, she's correct. She's correct. But this is hugely the, misleading, right? How many people are going to read this and say the president of LSAC is saying that it's not absolutely necessary that I even have looked at the kinds of questions yeah. that are going to be on the test. So, yeah, I think I am just going to go and take it. Or yeah. my prep is tough. I'm not making progress as quickly as I'd like to make. And uh, maybe preparation yeah. is overrated anyway, so I'm just going to go take it. Like I, I feel well, like this is this is strange. I don't know. Seems strange to me. Yeah, she's she's also like entrenched in the middle of the law school industry, you know. And the law school industry thinks that people with a 150 should go to law school, mm. right? She she's perfect. I mean, the whole machine they want thousands and thousands of students paying millions and millions of dollars. And so they want people who get a 150 to go to law school. They want you to like take the LSAT, get a 150, feel good about it, and apply. Yeah, that's what the that's what the whole industry wants. And so you know she yeah she's she's trying to welcome. She they want more customers. So it's like no, you don't have to prep. Just sign up for the LSAT. You know you might do great. Read one book. Look at one practice test. You might do great. Just sign up. Give us the 180 bucks. Sign up. Take the test. See how you do. Why not? Apply to law school. Go spend $180,000. Yeah. Why not? I mean, I don't think that's doing these students a favor. I mean, and the employment outcomes pretty clearly indicate that it's not doing these students any favors. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, I Take all this advice with a grain of salt. I mean, you're you're... Basically, these people are trying to sell you a JD. Yep. And we uh, are, we've taken a pretty strong stance that we don't want you to pay for a JD. Yeah. Unless you uh, have really, really good reasons to pay for it. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's on Vice. <laughs> <laughs> that's that. We'll, we'll put links. <laughs> we will put links to these uh, stories so you can read them yourself on uh, thinkinglsat.com. Yeah. So what's this next one? This looks like you copied this. <laughs> so this is a this is a former student of mine, and he asked me for a favor. He wants a shout out for the startup he's working at. He's he's a law student, and he's taking he's right now taking a break from law school. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, which could be very sensible because if you have other uh, employment options. Mm -hmm you might want to think about doing other things. Okay. And um, so he works for a company called southernstraps.com, which is an Apple watch band company. Okay. And he wanted a shout out because we're getting into the holiday gift giving season. And I have no idea why these watch bands are better than normal Apple watch bands, but he's a listener and a buddy. So fuck it. Go team. <laughs> um, 
he gave a promo code. If you use the promo code LSAT, you'll get thirty percent off. Are we turning uh, into Southern, like a like a southernstraps.com. Are we turning into like a a little you know, a promo shop, like every now and then? Absolutely not, because (laughs) if we're going to pimp things on the show, we need to pimp our own things on the show Uh, and try to actually make some money instead of um, just, you know, doing favors for random people. But now this is, he's a good dude, and um, we've never done anything like that before. So for the Thinking LSAT community, I'm happy to to give a quick shout out. Sure, and we get get 50% of the proceeds, is that right? (laughs) I wish. I mean, (laughs) no, we're not going to get shit from that, so... That's why we need to hurry up and sell our own classes and tutoring and stuff so that we can, uh, by the way, you know, Ben, if someone wanted to check out your free online class, where would they go? Oh, I, I'm so glad you asked. Um, <laughs> uh, strategyprep.com forward slash free. Check it out. That's a free online class. And then from there, um, you can see if you, you like what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Same for yeah, you. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You go to foxlsat.com slash free and you can see the format. You can figure out whether you think it's going to work for you. I would definitely recommend listeners check out my class, check out Ben's class and just see, you know, who you want your guru to be. Of course you can sign up for both of them. Yeah. Um, which we have had many people do, but, um, check out one, check out both, see which one you think is going to work. And uh, that's how you can work with us if you want to work with us. Uh, we, we also do one-on-one private tutoring. Um, I think, Ben, you just always tell people to, to email you. Yep. Ben at strategyprep.com mm-hmm. yep. if you're interested in one-on-one tutoring with Ben. Uh, with me, you can email me, Nathan, at foxlsat.com. But you could also just um, go to my website and book that. Uh, just book yourself a session if you want to do it that way. Cool. Cool. Um, so that's that's good. Southernstraps.com. <laughs> yeah. Promo code LSAT, so you get your 30% off. Oh, yeah. I wish yeah, we got paid on so. that, but we don't get paid on that. Yeah. Um, okay. This email came to me some for some reason, so I guess I'll read sure. it. Hi, Nathan. I am currently pursuing a master's degree in organizational leadership. I graduated in May with my undergraduate degree. Honestly, my initial plan was to go straight to law school from there. However, I did not do so well on the LSAT. When I first started to study, I scored around a 155 on a timed test. I took a course, and I guess I was so caught up on the strategy that I completely messed up on reading comp and logical reasoning. I'm not sure what happened. I scored a 145 when I took the LSAT last September. I only missed three questions in the logic games. I love the games, so I did practice those on my own quite a bit without said prep course and their strategies. So we don't... This uh, listener does not name the course that they took, but... Yeah. Um, sounds like could be a Kaplan victim, honestly. I mean... If, if you start doing a bunch of stupid strategies, like reading the question stem first on the logical reasoning, I think it can turn somebody who is a intuitively really pretty good, right? 155 at the very beginning is pretty awesome. Yeah. And uh, then turn that into a 145 by, by overcomplicating it and getting caught up in all these bullshit technicalities. It sounds anyway, like that might have happened. I'm also wondering if something else like happened because it seems like this person's game score went up, right? Like, I don't know where their games were at the oh, beginning, yeah. but 
only missed three in the game, so and he or she. To get a one forty five, you had to really shit the bed in the yeah LR like and or something. Like I wonder what. Well, happened. or I mean, always the swing for the fences on test day. Sure, that's a mm-hmm. that's a good way to get a minus ten off of your diagnostic. You know, yeah. go in there shooting for a one seventy five, and that's a pretty good way to get a one forty five. Um. I plan to start studying again, but I do not have the financials to put into another course. I do not have to be any rush to take the LSAT because I do not plan to apply for law school until August 2019 admissions. Honestly, I would just like to get into Georgia State and receive scholarships. My undergraduate GPA was a 3.7. I need at least a 160 on the LSAT, but of course it would be great if I could increase my score more. Please leave my name anonymous. Well, there's not really a question there, but I guess it's just like, what do we advise? I This all sounds very doable. I mean, a 155 kind of starting out and someone who can score near perfect on the games, a 160 is easily within range. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this I, all seems very doable. And the the goal for Georgia State seems totally reasonable, too, since her GPA or his GPA is, in, is above the 75th percentile. The 75th percentile for Georgia State is 3.6. And what's the 70th percentile, uh, 75th percentile LSAT? 160. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so 160 should get significant money, something over that. You start thinking about one of those full-ride or more-than-full-ride scholarships. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Georgia State gives more than full ride yeah, scholarships, they did. do they? At least you they gave there? two, and then they gave five yeah. full. So Sweet. So get above 75th percentile on both of those, and yeah, you should be thinking that you could get maybe the full ride. Um, from a 155 to get to a 160, I mean, because let's ignore the 145. Whatever, you had a bad day, you you swung for the fences, and you struck out. Who cares? Fine, whatever. Um, I, I, to get to 160, I mean... The student basically needs to do 20 questions per section on the LR and RC mm-hmm. and get like 18 of those right. Mm-hmm. Isn't that kind of the, the goal? Yeah. I mean, that would actually be higher than 160, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, with those games. All right. So, so games, you know, 20 points on the games, close to 20 points on the LR and RC. But the way you get 20 points on LR and RC is not by doing all 25 questions or 28 questions. It's the way you do that is you slow down, focus on accuracy, really understand what you're doing, get 10 out of the first 10 and like 14 out of the first 15 and like 18 out of the first 20 and you're golden. Yeah. So slow down, review your mistakes, figure out why you're missing the ones you're missing and always be, you know, timing yourself, do time tests with review time sections and time tests with review and at 160 from a 155 that's like a no-brainer i sorry you took a bad class i mean burn those books don't pay any attention to whatever they told you about reading comp and lr that they're filling your head full of nonsense mm-hmm. um be the math on the lr be the master of the argument you know understand what the argument says you just have to understand it. There's no such thing as allowing you know, like you're not gaming it and trying to answer it without really understanding it. You have to understand it. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, next one. Yeah. 
Hi, Ben and Nathan. You can say my name on the pod. I'm Mackenzie. I've written you before asking a couple of questions and really appreciate the sage advice you've given. Now that the LSAT is done, for some of us at least, I was wondering if you could walk your listeners through scholarship negotiations. Here is my list of questions. What is a negotiable position? Um, I know I'm supposed to leverage schools against each other, but I'm not sure how that's supposed to look like. I'm applying to reach, target, and safety schools. Let's assume I get into all the schools I apply to. Reach gives me no money. Target gives me a solid amount but no full ride. And safety gives me a full ride plus stipend. In negotiations with Target, do I talk about my acceptance to reach or my extra scholarship from safety? Thoughts? Um, well, I don't know. I, I think what you really have to do is you just have to ask for more money. I don't know how you ask, and I don't know that you need to leverage schools against each other. It's not like every time you ask them for more money, you have to like say, well, I have this scholarship from this other school. I think there's a little bit of a risk there. If you say like, if you try to tell Berkeley that you have a scholarship offer from golden gate, Berkeley's going to go, we don't care. Mm hmm. Right. So you can't, you certainly can't like try to show them a scholarship from some dramatically lower ranked school and think that that's going to really put you in a good negotiating position. But step one is just to say, hi, you want to just make sure that they know that money is important to you. Don't, don't you think Ben, like just, yeah. well, just make it clear that you, you don't make it clear that you're savvy a little bit. Yeah. I th I think that um I I I think that it's a little bit easier to answer this question once your acceptances come in and the offers come in because you're going to take the school that you're most interested in whatever school that is and then you're going to look at your next best offer whether that's a reach school or more money from a a lower ranked school and you're just going to choose one of them because you don't want to list it all out. You just take your next best option and you say, look, I really want to go to you, but I have this other very tempting offer at X school, either because it's a better school or because it's a worse school, but they're offering me more money. And w would you be able to give <laughs> Give me some scholarship money, and I mean that's it's going the the conversation or the negotiation is going to be driven by how much they feel they have to pay to get you to move from that second best option to them. That's it. <clears throat> yeah, I mean I don't want to give people the impression that you're only going to be looking at two schools. I, I think you want to have more than more than two. Well, that, no, that you're, you're looking at about. multiple schools, but I'm saying when you're communicating with a particular school, whatever school it is that you're most interested in, you're not going to tell them all of the options you got. You're just going to take the best, the the real com alternative, right? You're going to take the best alternative yeah. to that school, and you're going to use that to try to get. It, 
Um, if you even name them at all. And I, I don't think, I mean, cause I think this can go multiple rounds too. So one way to do it would be immediately, as soon as every, any school gives you an offer, you just immediately ask them for more money. Okay. Like sure. make it clear. Cause you've applied, but when you applied, you didn't say, Hey, I want a scholarship. You just applied to their law school. Sure. They make you an offer of admission. They either do or do not give you a scholarship and no matter what they give you, you ask them for more. Okay. You just say, and, and you do it politely. You do it professionally. You say, I am extremely concerned about graduating from law school with, you know, um, X amount of debt or with debt. I'm, I'm just really concerned about a lifetime of debt from this endeavor. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm wondering if there's more, if you have scholarship money available. I mean, you could even say like, if you say I've looked at your 509 report and I noticed that you gave 80% of the class last year, some scholarship assistance. And I've noticed that your 50th percentile amount was this. And I would like, I mean, right. Because I, I, how, what do you think the percentage is of, people going to school who have never even looked at the 509. Oh, I think the vast majority have no clue. Like 90? Yeah. And so I think if you mention, I mean, and the law schools hide the 509s on their website. They don't, <laughs> I mean, like in the offer of admission, they do not give you a copy of the 509 report. No. Thanks, Google. They do not want you looking at the 509 report. <laughs> yeah. So you could sort of subtly just put it in there that you you noticed that their 50th percentile award was this, or you noticed that they gave... 9% of the class last year got a full ride. Yeah. And just make it clear that you want to be part of that 9%. I, I think, I mean, that's when, when you do that, they're going to like all of a sudden go, Oh, okay. Well, we can't rip this one off. Yeah. You know, she knows what she's, <laughs> Oh, I could just see them in the office. Like, ah, shit, this one's looking at the five Oh nine. <laughs> for real yeah Be they, because yeah i mean if they wanted you to look at that they would send you a copy of it yep their glossy brochure does not include that 509 information yeah so <clears throat> and i don't i don't know that at that point i don't know that your comp your competitive offer really matters that much it's, it's about them. It's about how much they cost. It's about what kind of scholarships they give typically. And you know what their LSAT ranges are. You know what their GPA ranges are. You need to put yours. I mean, so that's like the first step of negotiations, right? The next question here is when do I start negotiations? And it's like you start negotiations before you even apply to the school by looking at the 509s, figuring out a good broad portfolio of schools to apply to and just being really educated and savvy about you got to put yourself in a better information position. That's how you start the negotiations. And then you also apply really broadly so that you give yourself lots of best offers, you know, like lots of alternative offers. That's all part of the negotiation. Oh yeah. Yeah. Knowledge is power here. I mean, it's cliche, but it's, it's totally. So because they know everything and they're so much more savvy than you are. And they've done this negotiation hundreds of times per year Yep. with, with hundreds of students just like you. 
So they know everything until you start looking at the 509s and until you get bunches of offers from bunches of other schools. And then I think you can pretty clearly, when they offer you admission, you can say, thank you so much. And you can immediately just say, hey, I'm, I'm wondering if you can reconsider the scholarship offer. And you can give them whatever reasons you want to give them. But, you know, even just like, is do you think, Ben, it would be, I mean, they're not going to rescind your offer of admission if you go, hey, I noticed that my LSAT score is above your 75th percentile and my GPA is right at your 50th percentile. And I think that makes me a pretty competitive applicant for your school. And I noticed that you gave 80% of your class last year some scholarship money. And I noticed that you gave uh, 50% of the class more than 50% scholarships. And I would really like to be considered for one of those scholarships. I think if you say it like that, you're fine. I think people could um, – I don't think they'd rescind your offer, but I think they could. you could really sour the negotiation process by you know, turning a question into too much of like an expectation or an entitlement, right? You should expect it in your mind, but the way you phrase it should be clear that you're just asking because they want to feel like they're giving it to you, so – yeah, you don't want to insult them. Yeah, you you don't want to be like mocking them. You don't want to be a- acting superior. Like I know you're going to give me the scholarship. I deserve the scholarship because then you get like then their ego gets involved, right? And and they could potentially just respond like absolutely not. Yep, they wouldn't and, rescind and your then, offer. They'd just say no. And like if you want to pay full freight, feel free to come here. <laughs> Right, which they so they could do that, right? So you could stall the negotiations or you could you could force them into like if you take a hard line, you could force them to take a hard line. Yeah. And then then that's not good. So you want to be friendly, really friendly, but I think you can I think you can feel free to you can signal that you are that you have some information. Mhm. And there's ways that you can signal that you have other offers. I don't think you need to wait until you've heard back from all the schools you've applied to. I think you can start right away with any school that you, that there's a legitimate chance you might go to the school. I think you can start the negotiation right away. And people want us to write these emails for them, right? That we, how should that email go? What should I put into the email? Well, sorry, Mackenzie, but we can't really do that. I mean, <laughs> you're going to have to, you're going to have to figure that out for yourself, but there's lots of different things you could put in there. Yeah. Just and then, be polite and stick to the facts and keep it relatively short. To, and don't be afraid to ask for what you want. Yeah. I mean, you just, you've got to be, you're supposed, you're going to go on this career as an advocate. You need to advocate for yourself right here and you need to, it it's really the information is just hugely important, right? Because if you put yourself in the position where you understand, like you've actually got the data, you you know what's up because you've looked at all the 509s, that's like half the battle right there, because then you are much more comfortable asking. Yeah. I also think you're and and this will, you know, happen as you go through the negotiation process, but I also think you'll be much more comfortable asking for more, maybe even more than the 509 suggests, depending on the other competing offers that you get, right? Because then you know that you have an alternative that's better, then you know already you're going to say no to this school. And so there's no harm in asking for, 
you know, the whole house. Like, why not? Yeah. Because you're, you're, you're not like, going to go you're anywhere. at the 75th percentile for both. Yeah. If you're at the 75th percentile for both LSAT and GPA, not above, but at right at the 75th percentile, that means there's people there with better grades and there's people there with better LSAT. But if you're at 75th for both, you could still get one of the very biggest scholarship rewards awards they have because other people are less savvy. Other people don't have the, the, the better offers. You've, you've done the negotiation properly. And so they, yeah, you might end up getting yourself the full ride. Yeah. Uh, that, that the 509 might not indicate you, you know, you're not a shoe in for it, but you could still ask for it for sure. And especially if you are legitimately willing to walk away and go to another school, if you don't get it, yeah. then 100%, why not ask for it? One way to think about it is if there's a school that you will go to, given the current offer that they have offered you um, over all, not all the other schools you're considering, but over another set of schools, right? Let's say that there are five other schools that you would definitely not go to um, unless for some reason you could not go to this one school that you're thinking of, all those schools below that school, you should be asking them for a full ride because there's, you're not going to go to them if you have this better offer at this other school. So you might as well ask for a full ride, um, or whatever amount would make it so that they're equal to at least equal to that right. offer. Um, right. otherwise, you know, they're not like you're not going to go anyway. So what's the point of asking for something less? You must just do the most you can. It's sort of the last step of the negotiation, right? You want to keep it really soft and friendly and fuzzy and warm in the beginning stages of the negotiation, because you don't want negotiations to close. Yes. But you want to, you want to keep pushing and pushing and getting, and, and at the end, like there is finally a walking away point. And at the walking away point, when you really mean it, like I won't go to your school unless you give me a full ride. I think there's no reason why not to say that if it's true. If it's true, yeah, because you're leaving anyway, so you might as well. Yeah, you're about to say you're about to just withdraw your application. So then, why not say, you know, I'm, I I have this other offer in hand, and I'm just not going to go to your school unless I get one of these full tuition scholarships that like you gave a couple of them last year. So, you know, I I would like one. So I do agree that this negotiation process is ongoing and it can go longer, especially if you're very, very nice and polite and make it very easy for them to talk with you. I do think that um, I would be cautious in my request though. I would plan on making no more than two requests because I'm not saying you shouldn't ask for ask three times or four times if the situation comes to that, but I wouldn't go into this necessarily shooting right away. I would come into it and plan on two questions. One, the first time you're asking for money as soon as you get an offer, like you said, to sort of match the 509 expectation or, or exceed it. But then I would plan on one more request based on how the other offers come in and where I feel about that school now or how I feel about that school now. I feel like if you go into this thinking, well, I can ask and I can ask again, I can ask again and again and again, at some point there's just going to be negotiation fatigue. They're going to say, look, 
we've come back and we've made compromises. We've tried to work with you. At some point, I think you're just going to exhaust the person talking. So I would plan on one or two questions from the get-go. If you end up doing more because the situation warrants it, great. But I wouldn't plan on it, you know, plan on this open line of communication. At some point, they're just going to say, look, we've given you some counteroffers. Make a decision and get out of here. Yeah, I think you should ask at least twice just because the money is so big. Certainly, I don't think you need to ask five times or like your plan shouldn't be asking five times. But I just like I know this one student. I'll never forget the one student that I sent to UCLA who I'm sure she asked them like three or four or five times. And the final ask was a I'm withdrawing my application because I'm going to take this this uh, competing offer. And I mean, they actually ended up like getting off the phone, like hanging up, getting off the phone. And then she got a call back with the, the with the full ride offer. Yeah, and I think that's so. I think that's fine, but that's cuz the situation sort of like led it to that situation, right? Like she was in that power position because she was going to walk right. away. But I guess right. I'm just I I don't want people to like jump into this negotiation process and just be like, "Okay, can I get, you know, this?" without thinking yeah. carefully about like how much are you asking for right. a reasonable amount or you're just going like Thinking else that podcast said, like, negotiate, negotiate hard, try to get as much money as you can. And they're like, well, can I get a full ride? And they're like, uh, no, but here's some. And then you're like, oh, that's not good enough. And then you're going back and back and back and just like, dude, look, we're trying to help you out here. Enough is enough. Make a decision yeah. or go somewhere else. And so I would be yeah. I would be thoughtful about the the questions you're asking. And I would I would plan on two. One, when you first get your acceptance. And two, when you now have a negotiation position based on your other offers. And then, yeah, you – when you're going to walk away from a school, you can definitely ask again because there's no harm. And uh, if they still are willing to tango, then keep asking. But I wouldn't. Yeah. I would. I would say you have a limited number of shots before somebody's going to say, "Okay, see you, pal." Yeah. Yeah, and I, I also th- and I, I think it's better to ask for everything right off the bat than it is to like. You don't want to be like, "Give me ten thousand more," and then they say yes, and then you say, "Okay, now give me ten thousand yeah. more." Yeah, I agree. I, I don't. I definitely don't think you want to do that either. You want so, the deal to be getting better for them, not worse. Um. <laughs> so let me explain. What you're saying is you come in asking for a lot. You don't come in asking for a little. The deal gets better for them because you've asked for a full and then they're like, well, um, we can't do that. But what about this? And then you're coming down and so the deal is getting better for them. Your requests need to be getting yes. better. For yeah, them. your yeah, deal should sense. be getting – sorry, that's confusing. Your deal should be getting better because they're coming up to you. Ideally, the deal's getting better for both parties if you're – right? <laughs> if you're – because – I mean, it's less than what you've asked for in the beginning, and it's more than what they've offered in the beginning. That's right. So you're getting closer. You're coming to the middle. You're not going to something, and they're like, hey, we met you. And you're like, "Uh, actually, can I get some more? And then they're like, oh, what? Like, I've I've come to your request, and now you're, like, saying, sorry, no thanks. Which might happen. It does seem fair. But. Yeah. Well, at the end, it's always fair to say, hey, you know, I have this other offer, and I'm going to accept it. Um, but I thought I would reach out to you before I withdraw my application and give you an opportunity to counter beat yeah. it. Basically, sure. Yeah. You, in that situation, what you're saying is, "Look, I'm sorry. Situ- the situation has changed, and 
Um, the reality is I'm walking away, but you know, I'm still interested if you have any counteroffer, I'd love to talk with you and they can say no, but then they could say yes. And then like your student, you know, get a better offer. Yeah. Yeah. This, the negotiation, like never, never has to end. Honestly. I mean, we've heard from Anne Levine talking about students who started law school at school X and then got a better offer from school Y and ended up walking away from their first semester tuition at school X because the offer was so good at school Y. Yeah. So even if you have you know, to pay it, that, uh, $20,000 or whatever, it may be less than yeah. the other offer. Yeah. 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 So yeah, the negotiate, I mean, just because they say something's non-negotiable, <laughs> that's part of the negotiation. Yep. Okay. Um, Thanks, Mackenzie. Hopefully that helped. Yeah. Um, cool. Next one? Yeah, go ahead. Dear Ben and Nathan, please don't use my real name. Before I begin, I want to thank you for putting out such an informative, entertaining podcast. Through your words, though your words are at times quite jarring to many of us considering going to the legal profession, into the legal profession, they have been the catalyst to some much-needed soul-searching on my part. Thank you, Nathan, for being authentic. Thank you, Ben, for softening the blows. Oh. <laughs> when I first read that, I was like, thank you, Nathan, for being authentic. I'm like, what's this saying about me? <laughs> I just say what you want to hear. Um, while I still haven't decided whether or not I will actually press the button to apply to law school, if I do, I will go in with my eyes open thanks to you both. That said, I would like to ask your advice about a particular topic, poor grades. I will do my best to keep it short. I am 45 years old, probably too old to be considering law school in the first place, but here I find myself. Two years ago, I received an AS in legal studies from a local community college, and just this past May, my bachelor's degree in legal studies from a lesser-known private school in Southern California. I graduated magna cum laude, Laud with a cumulative GPA of 3.8. Um, okay. Hmm. Where's the poor grades? That's not poor grades. All right. Yep. Here's my issue. In 1990, I headed to college straight out of high school, and because I was young and ridiculously stupid at that age, I made mistakes that led to my earning several eight Fs and WFs. Um, this was over... WTFs? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what a W. Let's just say it's eight. I'm assuming it's okay. like withdrawal or something. Withdrawal fail. Yeah. Hmm. This was over a few years in a few different schools, but there were enough at the first school, a Cal State University, that I was academically disqualified. Fast forward twenty years. Over the last four years, I've earned from the aforementioned community college and private institution. Um a cumulative GPA of 3.98 with one crappy B+, ruining my hopes of a 4.0, okay? So between what I did two decades ago and what I have done more recently, my LSAC GPA is a heartbreaking 3.11. There's a lot of numbers here, but bottom line is uh, 3.11 with good, recent, bad, past, right? 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah, really bad. 20 years ago and then really good today 
and and an LSAC GPA of a 3.11. So, I mean, obviously you have to write an addendum here and explain what's going on. Yeah, and just uh, give them the numbers and not so many numbers. For argu- Yeah, not so many words as this, <laughs> please. Like, boil this down to like t- 10% of all this. Like, just state the facts. Yep. 20 years ago, just... I got, I was academically disqualified, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Then I figured out what I want to do with my life and I kicked ass at this new school. Yeah. I don't even think you need like the academically disqualified. It seems like 20 years ago. Yeah. Leave that I out. Got, You'll have to acknowledge that somewhere else though. Cause they'll ask that question. But. Uh, yeah. Explain why I guess you got. Yeah. So 20 years ago I got X GPA. More recently I got this GPA, which is a 3.98. Um, yeah. I think that's that alone is going to sell your story. Like people don't. That's the fact. Yeah. yeah. And that's all that people care about who you are now and what you're going to do in law school now, not 20 years ago. For argument's sake, let's say I score in the average range on the LSAT. Oh, I don't like this. I'm no. s- signed up to take the December test. And while I would like to be in the high 160s, I also want to be realistic. Well, where are you? Yeah. We don't, we have no idea. Yeah. Okay. Um, Will the 20-year time lapse between the old and academic me and the new me help at all when I apply to law school? Yes, of course it will. Will admission committees even notice or care? Yes, if you write an addendum. Should I be applying only to law schools that will accept my LSAC GPA of 3.1? Or should I be trying to apply to schools with higher GPA requirements and hope they see my potential? Definitely apply to higher schools. They're going to see you as a diamond in the rough. So, yeah. Yeah, you want to apply to a, a range. You want to apply to some reach schools and some target schools and some safety schools and try to get scholarships from the safeties and the targets and try to get into a few that, you know, dream schools maybe. But, yeah, this, let's say I score in the average range on the LSAT. I mean, if you score in the average range on the LSAT, we're both going to tell you not to go to law school. That's a 151. Don't go to law school with a 151. Just don't do it. That's a don't go. Yeah. Like a one a 159 is like a don't pay for law school. A 151 is like don't go to law school. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for your time, and thanks again for the Thinking LSAT unfailingly sage advice. I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. Unfailingly. I don't know about that. Anyway, should, thanks a lot for the compliments. Thanks for listening. Yeah, edit that to occasional sage advice. <laughs> Actually, yeah. just occasional advice. <laughs> just, just advice. Yeah, we're trying. We're doing our best. All right. You got this next one? Sure. Hey, Nathan and Ben. I'm one of Nathan's online tutoring students. Rather than ask a question that you probably already answered in a previous episode, I want to tell you guys about a funny encounter I had yesterday. So I'm at the mall at a clothing store buying something for a formal military event. While waiting in line, there was a guy in his late 20s or so standing in front of me with a shirt in his hand. He sets the shirt on the register counter and hands the cashier a receipt and says that he would like to return the shirt. The cashier looks at the receipt and says, Unfortunately, it has been more than 30 days since you purchased the shirt, and you cannot return it. The guy says, that must be a mistake. And the cashier responds, I'm sorry, but that is the return policy. 
The guy then stares at the cashier for a moment and says, I'm an attorney. What? And pauses as if he shook the earth with his greatness. The cashier stares at him blankly and says, okay, you still cannot return the shirt because it has been more than 30 days since you bought it. The policy is written on the back of the receipt. The guy then snatches his shirt from the counter and says angrily, we'll see about that. And rage quits out the store. Moral of the story, don't be that guy, Jeremy. Yeah. The fact that this person is an attorney actually makes his argument worse. Like, you of all people (laughs) should know how to read the freaking fine print on the back of a receipt. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's awesome. Yeah. I'm an attorney. Wow. I love it. Good for you. I love it because the cashier is like the actual attorney. Okay, you still cannot return the shirt because it has been more than 30 days since you bought it. Let's stick to the argument as the LSAT should have properly instructed you. (laughs) The source of the claim is not relevant to the merits of your argument. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That would be rad if if the cashier was like, well, I'm an LSAT teacher and I'm going to school you right now. Oh, yeah. That's good. Thanks for the story. Um... Oh, boy. This looks like a long one. Wall of text. Yep. All righty. Should I dive in? Yeah, last one. Okay. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I found your podcast just a few months ago in the midst of a panic while preparing for the September LSAT. Although I technically began to prepare for the exam in May, it was not until I found your podcast that things started to really come together for me. My first practice tests resulted in a score of 152, which initially had me pretty confident about my prospects for improvement. Unlike a lot of students, logic games was my best section. Unfortunately, once August rolled around, my score had dropped to an embarrassing 147. This was the result of a full-time school semester, a part-time job, and inadequate self-study habits compounded further by the stress of my aunt rejecting her her new heart after having a transplant in June. After listening to a few episodes of the podcast, I realized that it would be in my best interest to withdraw from the September exam and eat the registration fee as this decision came after the deadline to withdraw. Okay, now I'm focusing on preparing for the December exam despite the fact that I intend to go to law school next fall. The stakes are high, which has been pretty stressful. Although my score... On my last practice test did not improve as much as I would have liked. My reading comprehension has improved exponentially from minus 16 to minus 3. Wow, good job. Slowing down has been a big help, and my review is sinking in a lot better now. So thank you both for all that you do. Uh, Cool. While your advice for the LSAT itself has been invaluable to me, I usually end up skipping over your recommendations on law school applications as I am from Canada. And anything that applies in the U.S. does not apply in Canada. <laughs> no, sorry, that was my own. Um, unlike in the United States, law school applications here are done on a province-by-province province basis. We also have a much smaller selection of law schools across the country. I always laugh when you audibly roll your eyes. Okay, not a thing, but I feel like I pick up pick that up from your tone. When someone wants to mention that they are a paralegal in their personal statements, where is this going? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, no, th- 
So, sorry. Go ahead. Keep 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 read. I mean, I'll just make a comment there. I mean, I don't roll my eyes about paralegals. Of course, para- paralegals know what's up with the legal pr- pr- legal profession. They've been there. They it's totally legit to talk about being a paralegal in your personal statement. I don't know why this reader thinks I I don't roll my eyes when I see that. That's totally fine. I roll my eyes about your stupid law school internship that you did for three months. Like that doesn't do anything for me, but your career as a paralegal does a lot. Yeah. Um, I guess we're rolling our eyes at the fact that they paralegals think that that's some like special in, right? Yeah. I mean, but yeah. Okay. Go ahead. In Ontario, the province where I live, paralegals are actually licensed under the same association as lawyers, referred to as a P1 license, and can represent clients in certain courts across the province in the interests of expanding, quote, access to justice. This means that I already have the same education as lawyers in administrative law, immigration and refugee law, and labor and employment law, to name just a few areas. Currently, Ontario is the only province in which paralegals are able to do this. Okay, fun facts about being a paralegal in Ontario. Thank you. With these differences in mind, I was wondering if at some point you might consider bringing someone on the show who might be knowledgeable about Canadian application processes. I wonder if this information might be valuable to your American listeners who might be interested in coming to Canada for a cheaper legal education... I can tell you right now, almost no one wants to go to Canada. No offense. but, but Well, I mean, uh, people who already live in Detroit might be willing nope. to go to Toronto. No, no one wants to go there. I would. What? If I lived in Detroit, I would absolutely move to Toronto. Well, I would just move to Toronto in a heartbeat because Toronto is awesome. But if I lived in Detroit. Yeah, if you lived in Detroit, sure. Because yes. Detroit Well, sucks. no, I mean, if you live in... <laughs> Well, so what I'm saying is if you live in a northern city already, you might very likely, I mean, hey, people who live in Seattle, you could absolutely go to Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver is awesome. Seattle's awesome too, but Vancouver is amazing. And if you could go to, if you could go live in Vancouver for a few years, I mean, you'd basically be moving to Canada forever though, right? Because like, can you go to school in Canada and then come back and practice in the United States? I I, don't don't think anyone wants to go to Canada. The, okay, I I want to go to Canada. You want to go to Canada and become a lawyer there? No, I don't want to become a lawyer because I would kill myself. Yeah. But I, okay, so I don't want to be a lawyer, period, and I don't think anybody should. But <laughs> you, <laughs> there's hyperbole for you. Yeah. But um, if I was going to live in Seattle, I would live in Vancouver instead. And if I was going to live in Detroit, I would definitely live in Toronto instead. Okay. And so... I mean, those places are awesome. I don't know if you've ever been to Vancouver or Toronto, but they're both awesome. So Canada, if you can stand the weather, Canada is a better version of the United States. It really is. It's it's like cleaner, safer, better healthcare, better culture. It's just better. So um, no, I'm I'm a, I'm a big advocate of Canada if you want to live in the frozen tundra. Okay, I'd be really curious how many people want to move to Canada, but. Um... I'm not saying anybody wants. To, I'm yeah. I, I, I it for the people who live there. I mean, people cross that border all the time. Yeah. Like between Detroit and Toronto, people cross that border just like daily. Yeah. So it's not that big of a deal for somebody who already lives in the frozen tundra. Um. Okay, so 
He's wondering if it would be valuable to your American listeners who might be interested in coming to Canada for a cheaper legal education. By contrast, not many Canadians would be willing to go to the United States for law school because the process to get qualified in Canada, even with an Ivy League degree, is extensive and involves either taking between 10 and 8 and 10 additional examinations, depending on the individual, or attending a Canadian law school for another year. Okay. Like doing an LLM, well, I like think the, equi- the Canadian equivalent of an LLM to get your US JD domesticated. Yeah, isn't that the same problem? That's exactly what we were talking about. Like, this is assuming that a Canadian would come to the United States and then go back to Canada. Um, well, they're saying no one's going to want to do it that no way. No one's going to want to do that. They're suggesting maybe somebody might want to do it the reverse yeah, way. Yeah, but that would mean the same thing. That That's assuming that you'd go to Canada and then want to come back. And then when you came back, you'd have a Canadian degree, which would be useless. So you'd have to. Yeah, that seems pretty speculative. I think if you're going to move to Canada and study law, you're basically moving to Canada, period. Yeah. And people like who forever. are moving to America aren't going to stay here, period. That's what they'd have to do, too, right? It's exactly the same problem. Yeah. So. Right. I'll leave it here, as I know you're not fans of Walls of Text, even though that's basically what this is. Yep. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Keep being awesome. Thank you. Um, pronounce uh, Kaya? Is that how you pronounce that? Kaya. It gotta be Kaya. 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 It looks like Kia. Yeah. If it's yeah, key, it's K I A H, and she says uh, Kia. Pronounced Kaya because I know you'll butcher it without this pronunciation. Yeah, and I suck at the pronunciation key. I suck at pronunciation, period. So Ben butchered it anyway, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's I'll Kai. call you K for um, now. Just like a game. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we I, I will I put this on here with the intention of getting somebody to talk about Canadian law school stuff. Um, but the only two people that I know, I asked Anne Levine and she was like, Nope, I don't do that. And then I asked Graham Blake. And Graham was like, well, but I do LSAT. I don't really know. He he was just like, I'm not an expert about um, admissions stuff. So we don't know anybody who's an expert about admissions. If we if some listener is an expert on Canadian law school admissions and would like to talk to us, um, send us an email, help at thinkinglsat.com, and maybe we will uh, consider getting some of your insights onto the show. Because there are people in Vancouver and there are people in Toronto and they're they're going to law school. So we'd, we'd be happy to try to help those folks if we can. Yeah. Um, Not that those are the only two cities in Canada. I've also been to Montreal, which is bitching, and I've heard Ottawa is really good too. So I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Canadian. I'm a fan of Canada. Uh, I'm, I'm not, not a fan of Canada. I just don't think maybe people want to move there and live there for the rest of their life. But maybe they do. So how about can I move there and live there until Trump is not president anymore? Because uh, I don't know. If, Justin Trudeau is like a badass. He's like. <laughs> He's just like so cool. He's so nice. He's smart. He's like he's like photobombing, taking pictures with people at gay weddings and stuff. And then meanwhile, Trump is just like being a complete dick all the time. <laughs> I'm surprised you would yeah. talk about our president like that. <laughs> Respect for the office, Mr. Fox. Yeah, he's on Twitter calling people fat. <laughs> Did on, he really call some asshole? Fat. Jeez, Louise. He tweet. He said. He said a couple tweets in the last couple weeks that I've just been like. I. I just. It's. It seems. I think I'm on. I'm. I'm like on candid camera. I think. I don't think any of this is actually happening. I think we're all just stuck in a weird dream world. He tweeted about Kim Jong Un. And he said, "I don't know why Kim Jong Un would call me old, because I would never refer to him as." short and fat. 
I've tried to be friends with him. Maybe someday it will happen. Who knows? Or something like that. Uh, it's so like funny. a seventh grade. It's like a, it's some seventh grade bullshit. <laughs> Dude. Okay. And then he is, he is incredibly good at like becoming a bully. Um, he would be so good yeah, he, in high school. You know what's interesting about it? He, you know how they just uh, they expanded Twitter now to 280, yeah. 200, 280 sure. characters, which is totally dumb. It's like the the two eighty tweets are horrible, but Trump is the worst. And the the two eighty tweets that Trump has put out, you like can't even get through them. Like you can't even read them. Yeah, he's much much better in one hundred and forty characters because it's like, well, that's actually a, a sort of a you're going to be a better writer if you write less. Yeah. Your personal statement, if you're going to write short sentences, because they are going to sound a lot better short than they're going to sound long. And it's if you look at how people tweet, I mean, when I see the 280 wall of tweet, I like just don't even read it. So shorten it down, keep it, keep it tidy. And it is going to ruin Trump's Twitter game if he if he keeps writing 280 tweets. But it seems like he hasn't been. I think he's been shortening them down already. He's he I think he's realized that he sucks at 280 and he's been like trying to go shorter. But one, so here's another ridiculous Trump tweet from this morning. You know what happened with these UCLA basketball guys? Did you read about All this? All I saw is that they were accused of stealing something, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did. Like, try to rip off some sunglasses from some, like, Gucci store or Gucci restaurant or something. Way to go. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's idiotic, you know, kids, yeah. right? Kids being kids. And, I mean, the dude has a brother in the NBA. He plays basketball for UCLA. Like, he's going to probably play in the NBA. And he's in China, and he's shoplifting some sunglasses. <laughs> Like, okay, so you're an idiot yeah. and everybody knows he's an idiot, whatever. You're a kid. I yeah. mean, that's just, okay. Shit, shit happens. But they ended up getting, um, they just flew back. Like, in fact, they're doing a press conference today at UCLA where they're going to, I'm sure, be like apologizing if, um, profusely. Yeah. But so Trump tweeted this morning and it, and it was like, do you think the UCLA basketball players will thank Trump? They were headed for 10 years of prison. <laughs> that one actually made me feel sorry for Trump. Like he's because desperate for de- desperate for love, yeah. like desperate for attention. You know, like, I mean, that's really a it's so petty and it's so it's just so sad. Yeah, that's what this whole thing has been right. Like. He says random things every now and then. Like when he, uh, I can't remember what, uh, like it was like some football team was there, I think, or something. And it was shortly after the election and he looked around and he was like, can you believe it really happened? I'm president. And it's like, uh, no. And apparently you can't believe it either. Like this whole thing <laughs> is crazy. And yeah, he needs like affirmation that, He's succeeding in life or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I I, I feel sorry for him. I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping it goes better for him. I'm I'm hoping he I'm hoping he finds happiness somewhere and that he doesn't decide to try to end the world in a in in flames. You know? Yeah, in an effort to show his strength i think he's doing the best he can you know with with the i think we're all doing the best we can and he's he's got 
<clears throat> he's got some limited capacities in some ways. I mean, he's got capacities enough to figure out how to get himself elected president of the United States. So he, he has uh, some pretty powerful skills as well mm-hmm. that people need to not underestimate. Yeah. But, um, it, it does seem as if his, his temperament, you know, it, it, I think he's, um, he's a human like every, like, like all of us. And he, uh, he has a hard time sometimes. I think it seems. Yeah, I agree. As much as he tries to put out the like bravado. Yeah, you know? exactly. Oh, look at this big man. But I think really what he wants is a hug. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, for real though, yeah. like, he, it's just sad, you know, I, that, that really did legitimately, I mean, for someone who I just, I hate him so much most of the time, but like I read that and I was like, oh, well, he's just like everybody else in, you know, in some ways. Yeah. Hey, let's leave it there. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> let's leave it on that note. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. You can always reach us at uh, the Thinking LSAT. No, oh, no, sorry, thinkinglsat.com. Um, you can also email us at help at thinkinglsat.com. We try to get back to as many emails as we can. I think we get back to all of them, but we don't always put them on the show, but we try to put as many on the show that we can. And the less wall of text like it is, the more likely it's going to get onto the show. We want relevant details about the question you're asking. Yeah. We also want funny anecdotes and stuff. That's fine. But just we don't want rambling biographies of your entire academic background and every little last detail of what, you know, what's going on. We keep, try to try to keep it, keep it a little tidy. Do us a favor. Um, and just, uh, yeah, just tighten it up a little bit. Yeah, read it twice and delete stuff the second time through. Um, delete like half of it the second <laughs> time that you read it. Yeah. And yeah, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you again. Yeah, thanks everybody for listening.